I was hoping to be able to speak from the floor. Um, that way I know I wouldn't fall off the stage. Um, I have a propensity when I get in front of a lot of people to uh, lose my fine and gross motor skills. I was speaking in Emporia State once and in front of the whole group at a lecture hall. I knocked over my podium, I think. I spilled my seven up on the floor. It was really bad. And my mind goes to mush, too, such that um, just keeping track of myself. I kept losing my notes. I walk, I pace, I'm everywhere when I teach, usually. And finally, I just said, you, you're in charge of my notes. You know, through the whole lecture, as long as we're here, you keep track of my notes, you know where they are at all times. And it helped, because two or three times, it's like, what did I do with my notes? And she uh, got me back on track. Anyway, we're going to hold on the, on the music, Krishan. I think uh, I just really enjoyed that last um, piece because it helps define not only who God is, but who I am in relationship to God. And that's kind of, kind of where we're going today a little bit. Um, let me flip over into, oops, there we go, getting started. I'm going to flip over into Matthew. No, excuse me, Mark, that's where I hang out. No, I'm going to go to Matthew. See, I get myself addled. doesn't take much. Uh, I've been studying a bunch in Matthew, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm going to tie that into where we are in Mark today. Um, let's go, um, what I was going to open with, and, and the music itself is not critical, but the message is, is pretty profound. The birds uh, in the 1960s recorded, to everything there is a season. Turn, turn, turn. How many of you remember that? A few. Okay, that was pretty pivotal to, to who I was and, and where I was in the 1960s. The 60s, I was growing out of childhood, growing into being a young adult. Um, high school years, uh, as many of you know, I never finished high school. Uh, I was a bit of a rebel inside, and the, the principal knew it, and I was uninvited from my parochial school. Found myself going to college when I thought I was going to go to my senior year in high school. Uh, probably the only person in the state of Iowa with an honorary high school diploma, which I got a year or two after I graduated from college. They finally sent me one in the mail for some reason. It was just really weird. Anyway, reflecting back on that today, um, I was thinking of those years and that, that period of time, and it's so much like today, so much like today. Uh, I can remember sitting in class and, and the word coming that John F. Kennedy had been shot in Dallas and his death later that, that afternoon being announced. Um, Martin Luther King, not long after that, was assassinated, and our community erupted in riots. I can remember seeing armored personnel carriers going down from, from the uh, Cleveland Heights down into the city, where the city was on fire with people rioting after that occurred. Um, racism was a huge issue in Cleveland, Ohio. Strict racial divide, and it touched our family in a very real way. Uh, my parents, in 1966, sold our home to the, the guy who was taking my dad's place at the university. This guy was a PhD in uh, statistics, mathematics and statistics. He had taught in France. He had taught in Russia as a visiting scholar. I mean, he was really way up there in his field, really well-known and renowned. Uh, unfortunately, he was black, and our neighborhood was white. And before the summer was over, our family had to have police protection because uh, fights taking place, threats taking place, a home about a mile from us where uh, an East Indian family moved in was firebombed. That was my teenage experience uh, that I grew up in. Again, not unlike the times today. Society seemed to be unraveling. Uh, we were engaged in a war 
that actually began in the 1950s with the French in Indochina. We were financing that, but in the 60s, our troops were going. And my brothers were facing that. My older brother is facing the draft. Do I go and fight for my country even though I don't believe in this war? Do I flee my country and go to Canada or Mexico where I don't have to obey the call? Do I actively resist my nation, nonviolently or violently, as people chose multiple paths during that time? I have a brother-in-law who was a convicted felon because he refused to go. Tough times. So there was war, there were, there were challenges over racism. There was a, a, a descending of the, the culture and the nation into a time of, of despair and where is this nation going and shock. I can remember thinking and talking uh, with others, including my wife, about, you know, do you even bring children into this world? What's there gonna be? What's there for them? You know, the world could end at any time. And now we've got Kim Jong-un in, in North Korea threatening us almost on a daily basis to turn us into a nation of ashes. And he has the capability to do it. That same threat existed in the 60s, and it was big. Just started a book uh, a few days ago about actually a Russian submarine that, I don't know if it was a rogue submarine or not, nuclear-armed submarine that, according to the author, attempted to take out Honolulu in 1968. The submarine exploded when they, when they tried to launch the missiles. Um, just all kinds of stuff. Not a good time to live in, and that is so much like our time now. The presidential election, uh, riots that we've had, the conflict between police and uh, minority communities and, and inner city communities. There's so much going on, and it's like, you know, where is this gonna end? Um, in Jesus' time, his culture was in turmoil as well. Um, there was an occupying power in Rome. Rome had come in and they dominated and had for, for many years that culture. Can you imagine the hopelessness that would exist there? And people responded in different ways to that. There are collaborationists, one of whom you learned about on Wednesday. Levi was a collaborationist. He collected taxes. He took tax money, extorted it from the people. He had a right to get a certain amount, but he made his living by extorting and getting more money from the people, I assume through bullying and other tactics that, that lined his pockets. That was the role of a tax collector. The tax collector supported the system that was in place of the Roman domination with the, the Jewish leadership that, in effect, supported that to keep it going partially to protect their own necks, but that was the nature of the day. There are also within the Jewish leadership, there are Pharisees, there are Sadducees, there are different groups that competed with each other, much like our political parties in a sense, that can't seem to get their act together, can't seem to work together, can't seem to come to good conclusions for the sake of the people. Even in, in Jesus' time, there were different cultural influences. You know, we, we struggle with immigration and, and different groups, and what about Islamic terrorism and all that? In Jesus' day, there were threats that were constant. At Jesus' birth, within, within a matter of a couple of years, in those first early years, uh, Herod tried to get him killed and slaughtered. I don't know how many, dozens at least from what history says, infants, male, male children under the age of two, because he thought a rival in Jesus had arrived. So all that stuff was going on in Jesus' time as well. Um, 
There are conflicting cultures. The Samaritans and, and the Jews were in conflict with one another. The Jews uh, considered the Samaritans to be bad news, that they had apostatized and turned away from the true God. And the Samaritans thought the Jews were the ones who were, you know, off in left field. Uh, there were terrorists at that time also, Jews who were trying to overthrow the government. Jesus was suspected at one point of being one of those. Uh, Barabbas was thought to be one of those, perhaps, uh, though he was more of a common criminal from what we know. So all those things were taking place, not just in my day in the 60s, not just today here, but also in Jesus' time, a lot of those same pressures and issues. Let's bring up the, the first passage that we're going to look at. We're going to take a, a quick step back and talk a little bit about, about Levi and what was taking place there. I really appreciated Joel's message. He gave me some really good insight, but let's pick up at verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples as well, for there are many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's take this, just, take this apart just a little bit. And we learned about Levi last Wednesday that he had, had been training, um, learning, the Jewish scripture, the Torah, the prophets, the Psalms, in preparation, ideally, for becoming a rabbi, but awaiting a call. And he got no call, and he diverted to uh, becoming a tax collector, which you could make a decent living at that, though it was really a hated position. Um, I can imagine working for the IRS wouldn't be the most pleasant, but nothing like being a tax collector, because there it was face-to-face, -face, as opposed to the anonymity of the net and having an office and never seeing the people that you, that you torture. Uh, in the American culture. So, Jesus, the Messiah that they expected, they expected in many ways to be one that would leave them out of their bondage with Rome, but also be, to be someone who was, who was a holy man, and their concept, their conceptualization of what a holy man was, looked a lot like the religious leaders of the day. And yet this man who came, and, he, and prior to this, he was, he was healing, he was uh, freeing people of demonic spirits, um, he, he was praying, he was meeting needs, and people are going, wow, is this a prophet, is this a messiah? Um, and yet, then he's consorting with people like Levi. And it's like, don't you know that he's a sinner? Don't you know that he's a tax collector? Don't you know that he's a collaborator? Don't you know that he's hated by the people? What are you doing with him? Maybe this isn't the guy we thought he was. Let's go on to the second piece. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. John the Baptist, this was. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but your disciples are not? What's wrong with them? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. And Jesus concluded this portion by saying, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old skins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wine skins will be ruined. No, they pour the new wine into new wine skins. 
You get the drift of these two pieces going together, and I had to go back to that one from, from Wednesday because it fit perfectly into what's happening here. There's a schism, there's a, a fault line, there's, there's a break between what the people have seen and known and believed and what Jesus is bringing to them at this point in time. Jesus is saying, you've got to regear your mind. What you thought was holy, what you thought was right, what you thought was appropriate is not necessarily so. God gave them the covenant and gave them the law, but the law over the, the, the thousand plus years had been distorted and warped in so many ways. Fasting, giving. There are a couple of key pieces, this is keeping the Sabbath. There are a couple of key pieces that were really high on the agenda for the Jews. But they had wrapped additional things way beyond what God had asked for around these. And they became ritual. They became something that you did because by doing that, you were good. By doing that, you were good. Most religions of the world, outside of Christianity, all that I know of outside Christianity, say, if you do this, then that. If you do this, then that. This makes God's happy. If you do this, 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 then you're assured of heaven. That's not where Jesus was going. That's not where God was going. He said, from now forward, I'm bringing you a different message. You've got to break from your past. You've got to look at life differently because the track that you're on ain't cutting it. Later on, he talked about in Matthew about the, the narrow and the, the gate and the, the wide gate or the narrow road and the wide road. Uh, tied those into gates somehow, but I'm losing it. Anyway, he said there are these two paths and, and choose, but the, the narrow one is a hard road and it's a different road. And right now, this audience that he's talking to, you're on the wide road. Some of you could care less. Some of you are hurting and are confused. Some of you think you've got it made, like the Pharisees. How can he say to the Pharisees? Where was it? How can he say to the Pharisees? I have come to call the righteous, not, not to call the righteous, but sinners. I've come to call those who need the doctor. And the Pharisees are going, oh, maybe I get that. Yeah, they're the sick ones. He's being a little sarcastic there. Because the Pharisees were just as sick or sicker than those that he addressed because they thought they had it made. They were deluded. Let's go on to the third one. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. In one passage, in my translation, uh, they talk about it being ears of corn. I can imagine, can you imagine raw corn? You know, just... Mm. The Pharisees said to him, look why what they are doing is unlawful on the Sabbath. And Jesus answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then he, Jesus, said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He said, you know, the Sabbath, fasting, giving, all these things are real high on your radar, and they should be, but you're doing them wrong. You're doing them from the wrong heart. You're doing them for the wrong reasons. You're doing them the wrong way. The Sabbath, what I understand about that, that was set down in creation to begin with, and then later on when the law was given, uh, God um, made some additions and some explanations with that to help make sense out of that, but then the teachers of the law over time had created all kinds of codes and things to go along with that. For example, 
It was against the law to go a distance, against God's law to go walk any distance. They prescribed how far you could walk on the Sabbath, because otherwise it was work. But you know how you got around it? You took some dirt, put it in a little pouch, put it on your, your hip. Now you are still on your property or with your property. You could walk most anywhere you wanted to. Absolutely patently absurd. Totally getting around what God was aiming for. So again, as with the, um, the fasting and as with um, uh, his eating with the sinners, Jesus said there's a different mindset here that you've got to grab a hold of. The Sabbath isn't just a series of regulations that God put down on you to oppress you. They're there for your good. The Sabbath was made for man. It was made for man's health and well-being. It wasn't something that God laid on to oppress the people because the people were oppressed by that and many of the other regulations. Um, in my reading, I came across... Um, you know, I've done this all with notes. That's kind of scary, so now I don't know where I am. That's kind of cool. Um, Matthew. Yeah, Matthew 5, which the Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew 5, 6, 7, and through there. But I've really been focusing, and, and the preaching at my church has been on Matthew 5 a lot lately, so it's been really powerful. Jesus went through a series of six um, statements, or six uh, little vignettes, so to speak, that he talked to the people about and said, you have heard that it was said by the people long ago that. You have heard that it was said. You have heard that it was said. And a lot of that was, this is what your, has been put upon you by, by the Pharisees and Sadducees and priests. He said, this is what you've heard and what you've been taught. But I say, and they were radical departures. They were radical departures from what the people understood. Let me just briefly run through those with you. If you've got your Bible, you can grab it. It starts on Matthew 5, beginning verse 20. And he says, I tell you, if your virtue goes no deeper than that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never get into the kingdom of heaven. And they're going, holy cow, they're the holy people. They can't get in. How will I ever get in? And then he started to break that down. The first of those is one that's been really valuable to me. He said, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not kill. But I tell you, if you hate a brother or sister, oh, and then you will be subject to judgment. You shall not kill and you'll be subject to judgment. But I tell you, if you hate a brother or sister, you'll be subject to judgment. So this one standard that was, okay, don't murder, kill as in murder, this standard has now been elevated to hate is a form of murder, so to speak. And on par with the sin of murder. Wow, that's a total ball game changer, isn't it? And he went on and talked about sexual sins. He says, you were taught, don't commit adultery. You can do a whole lot of other stuff, apparently. And he said, uh-uh, nope. Looking lustfully at a woman is on par with adultery. Later, he talks about divorce. Um, in the law, it required that if a man was going to divorce his wife, he had to give her a writ of divorce. Because prior to that, women were just abandoned, much like in many countries today. If a man is, is done with his wife, he can say, maybe he's got three and, and likes number two and three and is done with number one. That woman is left to fend for herself in many, many cultures around the world. Jesus elevated that and said, if you divorce, not that he wanted it, but if you divorce, you must do these kind of things to help protect the woman. 
But Jesus said, now, divorce, that's no place to go, with the exception of. He said, man, one man, one woman, that's where you need to be. Don't even be, be talking shopping divorce. That's not what you should be about as a Christian. He talked about oaths and, and language and saying, instead of this, now this is where we're going. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth was part of the old law, the lex talonis. And he said, you've heard that it was said long ago, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And he says, uh-uh. And started talking about forgiveness and how that whole picture changed. When the lex talonis, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth was put in place, people were taking retribution that went far above and beyond what had happened to them. And that was, that was a pulling back from something even more violent. But Jesus said that standard is now new. So over and over, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Wow. Total break from where they'd been. I bring these up because we're at a time, you're at a time where you're making life changes and life choices. I came to Christ at age 17. Um, I had lived in Brazil for a year prior to that and had seen the travesty uh, and the devastation of lives of, of people, virtually every block in Sao Paulo where I lived, there were people living on the sidewalks. Families, whole families living on the sidewalk. You raised your eyes, it was a beautiful city, somewhere around 20 million at the time. And we lived on the fifth floor of one of those nice buildings for a year while my, my dad taught there. But you dropped your eyes to the sidewalk and you saw devastation every day, every day. That really challenged me to think about the purpose of life, why I was here, you know, uh, what's this all about? And as I moved on to college at the University of Iowa, I came to Christ through that time. But I understand that time of seeking purpose and seeking meaning. And if you're not there yet, you will be soon. Um, and that's not something you just solve with one quick decision. It's a matter of, of working out over a period of your lifetime. Because the, the end result is critical. The end result is absolutely critical. Last weekend, uh, we had planned to go to a birthday party down in Norman, Oklahoma. Our youngest grandson, the one that some of you heard, was actually born uh, in a driveway. Um, they thought they had plenty of time to get to the hospital and she'd been in labor a long time and they took another lap around the block walking and never made it back in the house, um, though it was up at someone else's house actually, a foreign neighborhood that they didn't know, close to the hospital. So my son employed his electrical engineering degree and delivered the baby with help from 911. So we were going up that last weekend to celebrate. We got a text or a call earlier in the week. Our daughter-in-law Alyssa wasn't feeling well. Flu symptoms, getting dehydrated, took her to emergency room Wednesday, rehydrated her. Uh, Thursday, those same symptoms were there, dry heaves, uh, just really struggling. They took her back up to the hospital again, rehydrated her. So we got a call, you know, she's not doing well, please pray, she's struggling a little bit, we don't know what it is, we think it's flu. So we said, okay, well, you know, stay in touch. Friday, my son was staying home with her from his job because she was struggling so much. Um, and also a three-year-old and one-year-old in the home. Um, during the afternoon, um, she was struggling even more. She had a seizure. Um, 
She had a second seizure. She became unresponsive. Could not get her to open her eyes, could not get her to move, could not get her to respond to speech whatsoever. My son called 911. His mother-in-law arrived about just in perfect time. She was coming anyways, despite the birthday party being called off. She arrived just before he called 911. By the time 911 arrived, her pulse was down to 37. The family was called in that night, not knowing if she was going to make it through the night. When they got her to the hospital, uh, they realized it wasn't the flu. They did an MRI, I think it was, and uh, discovered that she had a tumor on the brain and a blood clot. They gave her adrenaline. They gave her some steroids to try to reduce the swelling temporarily. She did a little bit better Saturday, um, though she was fairly incoherent. She didn't know who her mother was at first. She didn't know who my son, her husband, was at first. Uh, eventually, she got mom figured out, but she thought uh, my son was her brother, which was kind of interesting. And he said, I'll settle for that. <laughs> he told us that later. I, I settled for being, for being brother at that point in time. It was really touch and go. They scheduled her for surgery for, I think, Tuesday. Um, meanwhile, behind the scenes, family was working, and there's a, a neurological unit uh, at a hospital in Kansas City at Mercy Hospital. Uh, not Kansas City, up in Oklahoma City, north of Norman, about 45 minutes. And they managed on Sunday afternoon to get her accepted there. So Sunday afternoon, she was transported by ambulance to a better hospital where they had a neurological unit and people who did neurology all day long. The doctor said, we're going to try to schedule this for tomorrow. At 6 a.m., something like that, they got a call that they got it scheduled for noon of that day. They did the surgery. Um, immediate relief from her brain. She was coherent afterwards. I saw her maybe three hours, four hours after surgery before I came back to Sterling. Um, they removed a blood clot, a five-centimeter blood clot, I think, along with a two-centimeter tumor. But the question was, what else was there? Five years ago, she had a melanoma on her scalp that was uh, excised, taken off, and they thought they had things under control. Well, by the end of uh, her hospitalization, they knew things were still rugged, and that wasn't all that there was. She had a PET scan on, was it Friday, dear? She had a PET scan just this last Friday, and they found cancer in at least five other locations in her body, including her spine, her sacrum, both hips, um, and so she was, she was diagnosed as a stage four, stage four cancer. Tough stuff. She's off to Houston on Thursday of this week. She has an appointment at MD Anderson, which is one of the best cancer hospitals in America. She'll be on some kind of somewhat uh, experimental protocol that's not official yet. Uh, there's still some possibilities. They've got to look at some genetic markers and things like that before they make those decisions. And either over the weekend, next Monday, or when she gets back to Oklahoma City, they'll start her on a course of treatment. Uh, historically, at the point that she's at, there's maybe a 9% survival rate for the stage where she is at. She's age 30, she's got a birthday this week, she's got a one-year-old and a three-year-old. She is staring death in the face. You know, we had two students this last year who were coming back, I think, from spring break, it was, Thanksgiving break, yeah, from, and had spent some time with, with her family and coming back 
um, died in a car accident, just in a blink of an eye. The sun was coming up out of the east. They probably never saw the truck coming. How quickly? You know, we, we have these choices to make. And I think of Joshua 24, 15, uh, where Joshua, prior to his death, the Israelites had come into the land. They had defeated some of their enemies, and things were still somewhat in flux. And Joshua's time was done, and he knew that. And as he spoke to the people, he said, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the God of your fathers from the land beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Each and every one of you have to decide who you are, if God exists. If he does exist, who is he? What is he like? How do I relate to that God? And then ultimately, how does my life relate to a relationship with him or no relationship with him? That's a very personal decision that each of you have to make. A number of you have made that. And even though, even, in, even though I made that at 17, I still struggle with that. I still struggle with my holiness. I still struggle with being a man of God. It's a battle day to day. And it's a choice over and over and over. It's not just I made this choice, therefore I'm on this road and, you know, I can forget about it and put it behind me. Life is a struggle. Tears shed. Alyssa's strong. She loves the Lord passionately. Through this whole thing, even as she was getting, I saw her just before she went into surgery, maybe an hour before or something. And um, she was fairly coherent at that point. She was really doing pretty well. She had, she had the peace of God with her at that point in time. And basically, she relayed to, to others that she was ready, whether to live or to die, at age 30 with a one-year-old and three-year-old. Tough stuff. And my son's verse that he shared from Habakkuk, uh, and Lloyd, you have to help me out with that. Uh, basically saying in Habakkuk that whether my, whether my barns are empty and whether you know, this illness, this, this, these challenges uh, present themselves or not, God is still God, and I will serve, still serve him and still love him. He is still God. So I wanted to end with that to kind of pose that challenge back to you. We live in a world that is really sad, that's really corrupt, whether you look at sexual sin, it's estimated that 80 plus percent of all college males are addicted to pornography or have a serious problem with pornography. That does not honor God, does not honor your future mate. Females of the species have challenges of, of their own, lesser with pornography, but with lots of other issues. There are idols, there are issues constantly pulling and drawing you away. You have a choice. As Jesus was saying, you know, I've come to, to bring a, a radical departure here between what your religious leaders and what your culture is telling you and what I'm telling you is God. My challenge to you, if you're not a Christian, explore it. Look at it. Prove it or disprove it. Is it bunk? Is it real? Examine that. If you are a Christian and you made a decision for Christ already, pursue it. Pursue, it. pursue Jesus with passion. He loves you and he wants you. He wants you. Even though I have great sadness with what's going on with my family, with my son and, and his wife and the little ones, there's hope at the same time. Whether she lives or dies, 
whether those little ones lose their mama or not, God has a plan and God is still God and she is accepting of that. Now I can really relate to that because I had an episode that way, my wife had an episode that way. I blew out my heart valve years ago, age 50, boom. And I was dying day by day until they cut me open. I asked to put a zipper in at the time, they would do it. Um, And you know, it was like going into the operating room. God, if this is the time, this is the place, I am ready. Uh, My wife battled cancer and is a cancer survivor and it was pretty touch and go. It was about a 50-50 proposition based on the the probabilities of the whole thing. Sorry about the math. Um, Anyways, you will face those times. But if you haven't grappled with those issues prior to those times, it's going to be really scary and a really um, despairing sort of time. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this group. I thank you for their attentiveness. Lord, I pray that um, words have been heard. Lord, not mine, but your spirit. Lord, that each and everyone who walks out may have learned something about you and may pursue you um, and, and desire to learn more about you and how they relate to you. Lord God, I thank you and praise you for this opportunity. And I ask your blessing upon those, the students that are here tonight for the glory of your name. Amen.